This is WexCast from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. For this episode, we share a conversation between film video director David Philippi and filmmaker Bill Morrison, who received a Wex Artist Residency Award for his latest project, The Village Detective, A Song Cycle, a meditation on Soviet cinema and star making built around a print of a 1969 film starring Russian actor Mikhail Zharov that was found a few years ago on the ocean floor off the coast of Iceland. At the WEX for the Columbus premiere of the film, Morrison discusses his previous work, his fascination with degraded film imagery, and how the film's distinctive accordion score came together. Here's David Philippi to get things started. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Philippi, the director of film and video here at the Wexner Center, and it's my great pleasure to welcome everyone to tonight's screening of The Village Detective, the latest film by tonight's special guest, Bill Morrison. Recently called the Poet Laureate of Lost Films by Glenn Kenny of the New York Times, Bill is most associated with a practice in which he takes forgotten, sometimes presumed lost, and often severely deteriorated vintage film elements and resurrects them through his own unique brand of cinematic alchemy into something wholly new, personal, and visually beautiful. Among his many shorts and features are Decasia from 2002, the first film of this century to be named to the Library of Congress's National Film Registry, The Great Flood from 2013, a collaboration with guitarist Bill Frizzell, which was co-commissioned by the Wex's Performing Arts Department, and Dawson City, Frozen Time from 2016, which was named to scores of years' best lists and which became famous as the film made from films buried in an old swimming pool underneath a hockey rink in the Yukon, if you remember that story. It was during his work on Dawson City when Bill discovered incredibly, incredibly rare footage of the notorious 1919 Black Sox World Series, which he was kind enough to let us show in one of our rare baseball film programs, and which made Bill um, a bit of a celebrity on the national baseball scene um, for the rest of that summer. Bill's films have played all over the world, including such festivals as Sundance, Rotterdam, New York, and Venice, and it was during a retrospective of his films at the Bologna Festival, Il Cinema Ritrovato, in 2017, when we first discussed with Bill the possibility of a WEX residency award in film and video. Bill described a story behind the film on par with the story behind Dawson City. It all began with a film print, which was discovered on the ocean floor off the coast of Iceland. And we'll hear more about that later tonight. Um, we were so thrilled and proud to be able to support what became The Village Detective, Bill's meditation on Soviet film and political history that gives way to a dreamlike cascade of beautiful imagery that anyone familiar with his films has come to expect. The Village Detective premiered at the Moscow Film Festival earlier this year and debuted theatrically in New York in September, and we're so happy that Bill is finally able to join us to share his new film with, with our audience. Please join me in welcoming Bill Morrison. So thank you so much, and thanks, Dave. And it's true, uh, the origin story of this film really, um, well, I, I got an email from Johan Johansson, the composer, uh, in 2016, just as I was trying to finish Dawson City, and he had heard the report of um, the discovery of these reels of film on the news while he was visiting his home country of Iceland. And um, in 2017, I set about trying to 
learn more about it. And that trip to Bologna was instrumental in so many ways because I, I met Peter Bagarov, um, the curator at Gus Film Fund in Moscow and now at George Eastman House, uh, who, who just off the top of his head could reel off um, the filmography of these, the star of these real film reels. And, um, and that sort of started through a couple coffees or lunches with him. We made plans that I would go to Moscow later that year, and then I also arranged to go to Iceland uh, that same year. But none of that would have been possible if I hadn't also met Dave over lunch in Bologna. And he was like, yeah, you can be our Wexner residency uh, artist. And I was like, great. So um, I think, well, this funding has gotten off to a great start. Little did I know that they would be the one and only donor for this film. Uh, so I'm so grateful. Uh, it is because of you guys this film exists and um, such a pleasure to be able to bring it here. So uh, we'll talk afterwards and thank you for being here. Well, first, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, and to set the record straight, it's not like I'm walking around Bologna um, offering residency awards. It was very much a departmental decision. I just wanted to credit my colleagues, uh, Chris Stoltz and, and Jennifer Lang. We always make those decisions um, collaboratively. But that, that would be a fun thing to do, to start walking around cities like that and doing stuff like that. But um, yeah, I mean, to set the record straight, it was if I gave you rare baseball films, then you would... That would be different, them. yes. Yeah. Bump up the award, too. So this is the third time I've seen it, but the first time I've seen it big, and the, the scenes of the damaged film are so unbelievably beautiful, seeing them big like this. I mean, just stating the obvious before we kind of get into the conversation. But. Yeah, it, it is a, a wholly different experience yes. um, in, in a theater, and um, one I didn't have till I'd essentially finished the film yeah. and was mixing it. Uh, I always had an inkling that would be true. But, um, you, know, you can really get lost in those. And I think that the film does have uh, many different timbres mm -hmm. um, in, in those uh, lengthy um, explorations of the lost films are, are, are you're almost in a different um, mind state, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering about the decision, like where, where the image is so far gone and you continue to subtitle it, what, what you were thinking about there. Um, well, I mean, it's um, the the story somehow continues um, through. You know, it, it's not a lost film, right? Um, there is a referential copy, and mm -hmm. so um, in a way, it becomes um, its own artifact. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think whenever you know, obviously, it was a slight film to begin with. It was a um, kind of a a toothless uh, crime comedy, um, late Soviet crime comedy. Uh, the joke being that, of course, there wouldn't be any crime in a perfect socialist town, <laughs> so there would be no job for the district police officer to, that, you know, he hadn't had seen a crime like that since 1948. Um, uh, so by sort of exploring this um, story, uh, it becomes more epic by virtue of the fact that it sat on the ocean for mm -hmm. uh, 50 years. And um, I don't know, sometimes there was nice moments where um, 
they're talking about something disappearing and the image disappears mm -hmm. or, you know, the, um, so, um, or the, I think she, he's saying, uh, uh, where was Dushka, you know, and uh, at that moment, it's the end of the reel and mm -hmm. the, the decay completely mm -hmm. consumes the image. So, so talk about the moment in a little bit more detail when you learn of the discovery of this print and I'm sure like everyone that heard about this, everyone's hoping for mm -hmm. the, the extra reels of greed or London after midnight or something like that. And, and um, when you found out it was this pretty ordinary film that, you know, they're, they're like they said, they got the, the print from, or they have the camera negative, I think he said, either the print from the camera negative or the camera negative, and um, it's not a lost film at all. Um, when, when did you learn that, that it was not a... Oh, I, I learned it at the outset. Okay. Because what happened was that um, Erlinger Svensson, um, the uh, Icelandic archivist who um, you see a couple times in the film, he uh, wondered what it was and posted um, some clips that he shot off of his Steenbeck there. And a local expat, and you know, there's quite a bit of Russians, number of Russians living in Iceland, said, oh, that's Derevensky Detective. We see that all the time. Uh, you know, that's like, it's on television every year. It's the kind of film you'd watch with your grandparents, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, you know, so I don't know what to liken to it to in our, iconography but um it's sort of, of Oz or yeah I it's a wonderful it's, life it's not that special, but not even that yeah. good yeah yeah i think um uh, a know, hallmark christmas uh, <laughs> christmas like that. and there was there was no copyright issues so it could be shown mm -hmm. indefinitely without um having to worry about who to pay for it so it was a, a well-known film and um any russian i guess would know about it um to to test this or really to test Jarov's popularity because when I was in Moscow uh, researching um, for this film, I was actually a guest of the um, Museum of Contemporary Art called The Garage, and um, there was a bunch of young, hip curators who had invited me there, and they were, as one does, asking what I was going to look for um, at Gus Filmafond, and I started to describe uh, this film, and uh, Mikhail Jaroff and I could see their attention waning and uh, um, I realized that they'd never heard of this guy uh -huh. and he wasn't part of their reality. Mm -hmm. um, but then I noticed also that uh, the FedEx ground guy came to my door <laughs> and he had a Russian accent and said, oh, wait, wait, do you know who Mikhail Jaroff is? And he said, of course, Mikhail Jaroff is our great actor, you know, and so I knew that um, it was a maybe a generational thing mm -hmm. or um, you know, a culture. And then there was a woman who works in my community garden that one summer, and she had a Russian accent, so I tried it out on her. And she said, well, yes, I'm a young person, but I have an old soul, so I know who it is. So <laughs> I, it would be like somebody who's into you know, TCM or something. Right, would know right. So, but what was the leap then when you... Um you know, you okay? This isn't I didn't a rare your film. Question at all, right? I well, mean, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you found out this is not necessarily a rare film, oh, yeah. what what set you on the on the journey? Oh, then you know, I um, I found out what the title was and um, put it into old handy IMDb and um, learned of this guy's name and that he was in seventy films and that it stretched more or less the length of the entire communist regime and uh, of the Soviet Union um, and that he actually was in a film that predated 
um, you know, that was from Zara's mm -hmm. times. Um, and it was very exciting to be able to find that clip and the outtake that we used in here um, and to find him, you know. Uh, because when, I guess when he, they shot uh, uh, Ivan the Terrible with Eisenstein, they all took a look at that film and he was hoping nobody would recognize them, mm -hmm. him in it, but uh, they did and he razzed him about it. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I thought that the idea was that you could find a, find a um, popular telling of, um, I mean, here, here Russia went through such incredible changes and, um, uh, you know, really took down this entire centuries-old structure for with this noble idea of creating uh, a government for the people and ended up um, with authoritarianism that they still haven't lost and, you know, have been plagued by bad leaders. Um, as have we. So it, it wasn't going to be a case of uh, an, the American filmmaker wagging his finger at Russia, you know, but I did think that there was a way of understanding, um, you know, th this was a populist film actor. It wasn't, uh, he wasn't known as, um, you know, a great art filmmaker. He mm -hmm. was in popular films. And um, uh, I thought there was a way of understanding all the changes that uh, Russia went through in the 20th century, um, sort of as it mapped out through this guy's career. He was in so many films, and um, you know, film is almost strictly a 20th century phenomena, as was the Soviet Union. Um, along along those lines, and just given his kind of special place in um, Soviet and Soviet film and cultural history. Um, when, when you played the film at the Moscow Film Festival, I, I, it's hard to imagine like a, a, a more moving or more nuanced tribute to an actor, you know, instead of, it's not the kind of the thing that we would see at the Oscars or something like that. This is, you know, yeah. if he was alive to see it, I can't imagine what he would have thought I hope he it. would have liked it. Yeah. I mean, it was, so it was at the Moscow Film Festival and it was in April, so unfortunately I couldn't be there. Um, but they, they, I zoomed in and they told me that people were very moved by it um, and that it was on an enormous screen. It was on like a, on an IMAX screen mm -hmm. or something. So that must have been pretty cool. I, um, and I, yeah, I think that um, the idea that an American got interested in, uh, not just a Russian, but he was a real Muscovite. You know, mm -hmm. he was like um, born and raised in Moscow and uh, there's, different parts of the town that are named after him. So um, uh, uh, there's a postage stamp in honor of him. And, hmm. and so, I, you know, I think um, for those people, you know, they were like, well, no, he's he's a great actor. You know, that, that they wanted me to understand that um, he wasn't just a populist actor, mm -hmm. he, that he was a great. Um, and I think people who saw him on stage in, in particular were really impressed mm -hmm. by him. Mm -hmm. um, Definitely want to open it up to questions um, quickly, but um, I, don't, I don't know if this question will make sense to you, but there's a moment early in the film, I think what, what you're talking about um, the fall of the Romanovs, the, oh, yeah. um, and I think the phrasing you use in the film is, um, you know, these scenes remain, or these are like three of the only scenes that, I think you use the word survive, survive. Yeah. And I'm just, you know, given 
the nature of your films and you know you're kind of always on the hunt for 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 footage like this and for films like this if there's a moment where it ceases to be be the film anymore and it's something else for you if that makes sense where just like watching so much of that footage where it's not really the film anymore or is it i mean what do you what's your relationship to the to the film where it's there's almost like nothing left of the film anymore and you're taking it and making it your own oh, uh, is, is there a line that where it passes from one thing to to something else in this case you mean the film that was the fall of the Romanovs or the any or, film yeah. like uh, where it just it loses so much of its image or there's just enough there's not even enough of it there to the word survive was really interesting to me because is it surviving you know it was just it was really, yeah yeah um, yeah, um, yeah. It's a good question. I don't know. Um, for, for me, that that piece of footage had become my Rasputin. Mm -hmm. You know, it was sort of this um, mythological piece of thing that was a shadow of something. And, and, and you're right; it, in in itself, it became something. Um, in a way, that was a seed image for this film. Um, I have a dear friend who's the nitrate vault manager at the Library of Congress, and. Um, Part of his job description is to cut out the parts of rotting nitrate films and throw them away, and um, he does do that um, uh, rather conscientiously. Some people think um, too conscientiously, uh, but I'm the beneficiary of this because he'll then stick them on a shelf in the vault with a post-it note with my name on it. Is it George? That's George, and uh, uh, he'll and I'll come down and um, uh, take a look at what he has. And years ago, I think 2010, um, he'd, he'd sort of put that this piece of footage aside for me, uh, which I just thought was extraordinary. Um, and I don't know, just that image of Rasputin that's kind of uh, become kind of Medusa-like in its um, deterioration of its snakes coming out of his head. And um, it's it's, it's casting its own spell. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's um, actually vivifying what um, some sort of power that uh, his his name implies. So I'd always held on to that footage, hoping that I could nestle it into mm -hmm. something that where it would have some sort of contextual strength. And um, this film eventually became that that spot for it. You know. Questions from the audience. Um, you talked around it a little bit, but I, I'm struck by how moving from Picasso, where you're really you know, focused on the kind of lyricism of the complete image, yeah. to Dawson City, where you introduce a documentary element, to here, where you introduce a, a narrative element in addition to the documentary element. And then, like you said, there's sort of different modalities that each requires and how you move among them. You know, even as you slow the image, as you strip out the soundtrack from sound films and have the daylight score. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just really interested in how you kind of are balancing those things and interweaving them and how you were thinking about kind of the, the bigger structure as you as you move from mode to mode. And um, yeah, I was really struck by especially how the narrative elements really built to that final scene, you know, with the silence and the sea. And that was there's a really great payoff to that that I didn't see coming. So, so yeah, I'm just curious how, how you found that that movement between those 
Well, th I mean, thanks. I, I, I hope it does um, flow seamlessly. Um, you know, there, the three titles you mentioned are all very different films and set out to do um, different things. So I guess you could make the case that Dawson City and The Village Detective are, are more documentary-like. Um, I'd say all of them come from um, this fascination with the deterioration of the image and its materiality and um, this sort of um, uh, hypothesis that most of my work is built on that you can kind of compare the human life to the film life um, and that there's a dualism between its body and its spirit um, that reflects ours. And, um, uh, and so with this particular film, um, you know, I was given these four reels and um, rather early on, I was able to befriend the Icelandic archivist and convince him to actually ship them to me so I could get proper scans made. And I noticed that um, there, this, at the end of this one reel that it becomes almost like an animation, you know, that um, uh, especially when you turn it on its side, it's like dancing figures. And um, that's, I think, one of the first things I sent to David. I said, look what this film does. You know, I'm really amazed by this. It's, it takes on its own life after having lived, in, you know, on, on the bottom of the sea. And then there was a compelling narrative that it was on the bottom of the sea and that it wasn't just anywhere in the bottom of the sea. It was in the very middle and the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and that that was a division between uh, the East and the West, and that I had been uh, summoned from the West by someone who was neutral in Iceland, um, uh, sort of over it. Um, and so there was all these, there was this materiality that was telling a story, and then there was the backstory of where that came from, and and then there was, um, I had always hoped, a backstory about how Jaroff uh, would sort of be the divining rod through that um, massive amount of time. And then the other element of time is the narrative that the, the film tells and that, um, that that could be broken open. So, um, you know, it uh, was a film that required a lot of editing and um, sort of gathering, um, you know, and rearranging until it find, found, finally found the form that it took. Um, so it's a rather strange film, and I doubt I'll ever make one like it again, but um, you know, I was sort of pleased with how it came out, and watching it tonight was a joy. Other questions? So uh, David Lang and I are old friends, and um, uh, we've worked on, I don't know, uh, at least half a dozen projects together. This was the first one where it was actually driven by me. I, um, they were usually his projects that I came on to provide visuals for as you know, a live performance. Or, um, uh, so, uh, and of course, Johan was a great composer in his own right, and. Um, I obviously thought that he was going to write the score for this uh, film when he um, suggested. And, um, and the last time I saw him, we had had some lunch um, in um, 
uh, I guess it would have been early 2017, and um, you know, he agreed to do this, I think, kind of begrudgingly because there was all these big Hollywood movies that were hanging over his head and uh, eventually took his head. Um, but uh, um, David was a big hero of his, and when we lost Johan in uh, February of 2018, um, I thought that um, Johan would be really pleased if, if David wrote the piece, and it was a natural um, question to ask David if he'd be interested in doing it. And uh, since I had this very compelling footage, I, I presented him with the, the idea. And um, David, unbeknownst to me, it had studied Russian in college and um, knew some Russian and um, was looking forward to kind of flexing those dormant Russian muscles. And, um, uh, and also thought it would be a nice way to put his own relationship with Johan to bed too. So um, he agreed to do it. Um, it was funny because Johan, in that uh, meeting where he agreed to do it, said, I imagine an entirely percussion score. I was like, wow, I don't, but um, we'll get to that later, you know. Um, and David, who is one of our great writers of choral music, said, I imagine a, this entirely sung, uh, a choral piece. And I said, well, that's interesting. And, um, and that sort of gave rise to the idea of a song cycle, that um, this libretto could be sung. Um, but then COVID struck, and... Um, you know, we had ideas that the crossing could perform it and um, that it would become this oratorio in a way. Um, but then that became wholly impractical and uh, how we would ever get people to sing during uh, you know, pandemic or uh, when it would be performed again. And um, so then I suggested, I said, you know, it is about a lost accordion, mm -hmm. one accordion. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know anyone who plays the accordion? And he was like, oh yeah, there was the Frody Anderson's the guy, you know, in, um, in Copenhagen. So um, uh, David, you know, wrote these pieces as MIDI pieces. And, you know, in this case, I was working with him in sort of the traditional way a director would work with a soundtrack artist. I was giving him cues and lengths of, and, you know, basically what, what was... And, um, what was happening during that scene. And he just started producing um, all this really beautiful music and I could swap it around and figure out which ones went into which spots. And it was great because we'd done a bunch of projects together and uh, I, was, uh, I worked on his, um, The Difficulty of Crossing the Field and I really loved that piece a lot. And um, I said, you know, if you can go into that um, bank of your uh, composing it. Uh, I, I think that it would really fit with this. And he sent me some things and um, I said, okay, now I just want them slower. And um, he said, and so I, I took the MIDI and I, you know, uh, slowed it down to 33%. And um, of course that brings the pitch down too. And I sent it back to him. He said, so you want it slower and you want it pitched lower as well? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I don't know if Frody can play this, but we can try. So he wrote it that way and then sent it back to Frody and we got this, you know, it was almost sounded like a pipe organ or something. It was a very different sound for the accordion. Um, so anyway, that's how we worked together. You know, we, we didn't see each other until 
uh, I mixed it, um, but um, or maybe even later, you know, it's that, that year where everybody was, nobody saw each other. So, um, but you know, we sent emails and talked on Zoom and stuff. Does it feel like a, a COVID film it to totally, you? It does to it, me. It yeah. does. Yeah. But I'm, I'm assuming you got a lot of work done before COVID started. Yeah, I mean, I'd done a lot of the ordering that stuff, which mm -hmm. was helpful because all the archives shut down. Um, so it, it was, you know, come March 2020, I had a big drive filled with clips. And I was like, okay, I'll just shut myself in this room for a while and uh, see what comes out, you know. Yeah. So, um, so you were... Uh, Yeah, I mean, um, it's just something I believe um, that you can make this analogy between a film and a thought or a story or a dream, and then how that ages um, is how it becomes a memory, right? So um, uh, we can remember the way we saw something when it was perfect, but um, that thing is also progressing through time as we are. and. Um, um, when it decays, not that all films get a chance to decay or that they all decay in a beautiful way, but when they do and they decay in a visual way, it, you're you're looking at not you're looking at the time when it was made, um, maybe the time when you saw it first or somebody else saw it first, and then you're seeing all the decades that happened since then uh, made visual. Um, so. Um, you know, that that's the brass tax of it. It's not that spiritualist, you know, it's just, um, it's time made made visible. Um, that it also happens to have this extraordinary um, beauty to it, um, I think is a, a bonus, and obviously what brought me to it, um, probably through the work of Stan Brackage. You know. It's interesting just with the move from film to digital, like a film print obviously had, has a life, it gets projected 20, 50, 75 times, it gets scratched and torn, and, and for generations we accepted that. Now, I think younger audiences especially are, are intolerant of you know, any, you know, anything but a perfect image. It's, yeah. it's a completely different. Or if you see film restorers, they're, they, they, don't, they always like to leave a couple uh, Grains. Grains and uh -huh. dust or something in there just to make it more of the filmic experience. But I mean, um, we were just up in your booth and there's a bunch of 35 millimeter prints kicking around, um, probably mostly from the 20th century. And, um, and they're nice ones, I think. They're probably nice ones. Um, uh, they're survivors, right? Um, so, you know, this medium is so specific to the 20th century. It, it really goes from one 
turn of the century to the turn of the millennium. And uh, now we're sort of past that and we're looking at that. Um, all the films that were stacked up in there, the other times I've been mm -hmm. here are gone. Um, and um, um, so it, it's, it's increasingly a, a rare experience yeah. as we drift away from the 20th century. Not to get too far off track, but the last artist that we had before the shutdown, um, the Iranian-American director, Ramin Barani, it just so happened we had the only 35 print that he knew of, of his first man push cart, wow. that film. And he was, he, he couldn't believe, and it's, it's a long story why we had it, but we gave it to MoMA, you know? Yeah. And so it's just like so precarious that we, in Columbus, Ohio, we would have his, the, the 135 print, but. I don't know, there's a lot that goes down here. <laughs> yeah. Um, last question, just because so many people saw your film, um, Dawson City, we, I asked you a little bit about it on the way in, but um, is, the, is that uh, trove still going to yield um, future work for well, you? Um, I mean, I, I think I'll always dip into it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I feel like I told the story. <laughs> okay. yeah. I don't need to do that again. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, you said that you'd seen Buried News, which came out um, earlier this year, another um, pandemic um, essay in, in which I took, um, uh, well, there was four news clips from the Dawson City collection that showed um, the aftermath of race riots um, that happened 100 years ago. And, um, and so I delved into each of those stories to, to connect them. Um, and um, uh, well, culminating with the, the January 6th um, uh, riot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those newsreel archives are where it's at. But, well, congratulations again. Thank you, and, thanks for having me. Um, Bill was actually in Lisbon and Paris this morning, so um, and he, depending he, what you call this morning, yeah. And so, thank you so much for putting yourself through that. Thank you. <laughs>that was Bill Morrison, director of the Village Detective A Song Cycle, speaking with film video director David Philippi. To learn more about WEX programs and residency award projects, go to wexarts.org. For the Wexner Center for the Arts, I'm Melissa Starker. Thanks for listening.